Hello, and welcome to episode two of our podcast. I'm joined once again by my lovely co-hosts, Sam and Jim. How are you guys doing tonight? Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. My uh, my feet are a little cold, just just cracked and finally turned on the heater for the first time in the season, but uh, doing all right. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who listened for being so nice about episode one. Sam and Jim, did you guys listen back to the first episode? I did. It's always an interesting experience listening to your own voice yammering <laughs> on. I have a little practice, but not a, a huge amount. I, I I enjoyed listening to it. I enjoyed listening to my wonderfully coherent co-hosts and my less coherent self. But yeah, that was, it, was, it was fun. You guys are both lucky <laughs> in you. that you don't have to listen to your own ums and ahs as much. Because I'm doing the emotional labor of editing the podcast. So I have to hear all of mine and all of my Valley Girl glory. <laughs> I'll uh, Venmo you five dollars. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that anyone is ever really happy with the way that they come across in audio recordings. Like, I'd like to sound more learned and erudite, but I have the tone and cadence of like a teenage girl who's laying in bed, kicking her feet back and forth, and like twirling a phone cord around her fingers. <laughs> That's valid. <laughs> that voice wouldn't be in in movies and media so much if you know people didn't people didn't like listening to that. So, I uh, I couldn't I didn't. Uh, didn't listen back over. I'd had enough of my own voice from my Nagorno-Karabakh rejoinder on uh, the Wisconsin and Sumize podcast. And that was that was enough of that for, for one week. You got three podcasts going now. Very busy. You, uh, you hate to see it. <laughs> so now to get into the meat of the episode, Sam, would you like to give us an overview of the book's prologue? Yeah. The chapter is, uh, the, the prelude to the book is, is immensely textured, I would say. It opens in a dream. We're given our two core characters as children, Alma and Mick, and then their their mother Doreen. The unreality of the dream is is really deeply textured. We're, we're given we're, we're given both descriptions of how things are in in the real world, or, or how things are in the dream, and then how things should be. Uh, so we're given a description of the market as it would be. Um, active and bustling with cheerful traders, and it's contrasted with empty, with the empty streets of the dream. Our, our, our characters are, are walking through these streets, and they encounter one place that remains lit. Uh, and, and in here, we see uh, a handful of beautiful, long-haired, robed men, um, barefoot, and they're they're doing carpentry. They're they're described as as angles, which is a sort of archaic word for carpenter and is also an anagram and a sort of homonym for angels, which I think is what is strongly implied that they are. One of these is special. We have an, uh, a more description of this, this, this character, one of the carpenters, who is sort of unsubtly described as being immensely calm, uh, of Palestinian origin, <laughs> and <laughs> Alma hints at her knowledge of who he is by you know, seeking all things bright and beautiful. We have he he asked her the question, sort of immensely, sort of deep radio voice, where he says, "Do you know who I am?" And it, it reminds me of the, I think from 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 Narnia, where Aslan asked them, "You know, do you know who I am?" And we're like, "Yeah, come on, we we know what's going on here. We got it." So he's Jesus, or uh, God. <laughs> yes. So when I, I, I turned to the person I was watching the movie with, and I whispered, "That's Christ." <laughs> Exactly. We then sort of digress into a history of the madness of Alma's family, of the Vernals. The, the thrust of it is, is that this, this side of the family has always been, had, had sort of a touch of the, the madness, perhaps the divine madness. And then we jump to the present. This is, this is the dream of a five-year-old, um, and she dreams of herself and her two-year-old brother. And we leap to the present or, or something like it. Um, where we're with Mick, her brother. Mick travels throughout the city. He's he's walking in the two parts of this of this this section, uh, and we every aspect of his travel is is detailed really intensely. And I'm I'm not going to get into it, but the the meat of this of this section is is that Mick describes his dream to Alma. He describes the dream, and and in this dream, himself and Alma, Alma particularly, seem to identify an enemy. This is enemy is, is very specifically situated in a part of the, the city in the, the Bath Street flats. 
and the uh, it's the desolator, the demolisher, this the old factory, which has this sort of left this psychic residue. The destructor, yeah, this this place that's left this really awful psychic residue. He, I think, really the, the important part of this last section is that he, in his traveling through the city, he cuts through the the Bath Street flats, which are sort of the object of terror and are associated with the destructor and experiences this really in intense, inexplicable depression that he's not aware he's experiencing until he's walked past and outside of these flats. Reminded me a lot of what you said, CBC, in the last episode, I think about Alan Moore talking about um, how, you know, if you're, if you live in a rat trap, you're going to feel like a rat. These, these places, the, the psychological effect of, of living in these, this like horrible new sort of psychically barren uh, new development. Um, something that the structure brought to mind for me was Blake's Dark Satanic Mills that we mentioned last episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I want to um, say that too. Like the villain of the book is is literally a dark satanic mill. So as Sam touched on, and as we mentioned in the previous episode, the novel deals largely with place and the effects that it has on people. And there's a term that captures the general sense of what is meant by this more succinctly than I can. And the term is psychogeography. So this was actually coined by Guy Debord, and Debord defines psychogeography as the study of the precise laws and specific effects of the geographical environment on the emotions and behavior of individuals. So you kind of think of this as being like the precursor to bodies and spaces. <laughs> and for those of you who aren't familiar with Debord, he was a French theorist, a Marxist, and he wrote The Society of the Spectacle, and he also founded the Situationist International, and the Situationist International was a group comprised of the European intelligentsia at the time. And so various artists and thinkers who wanted to kind of interrogate the ways in which the capitalism of this period was affecting how people interacted with and experienced the world around them. And historically, the intelligentsia as a group have had varying levels of success when their ideas have been applied to the real world, rather than just being discussed over opium in a literary salon. But something interesting about them specifically is that they had a large influence on the May 1968 riots in France. And Jim, did you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, 68 is kind of a funny event historically. It's tremendously important, but not in the sorts of ways that tend to show up in the way we do kind of high school textbook history with famous people and the dates they were born and died and did great things and stuff. May 68 is this kind of tremendous event that might not have a parallel with like how global it is. I shouldn't say I shouldn't say May. I should say sixty-eight in general for the the global manifestation. But it's essentially kind of understood as this time where the generation born after the war in kind of the massive population expansion that happened almost everywhere after nineteen forty-five kind of comes of age politically. And so, in in kind of this new world that's been created by mass media, by kind of the interconnectedness of people, and they're kind of inhabiting a common social and intellectual space for the first time ever. For, for many of these societies, you get this kind of tumult of anti-war activism, anti-capitalist kind of sentiment, anti-consumerist uh, agitation, definitely. And it's hard to put a point on anything, one specific thing that, that gave rise to it, since this is still firmly in the um, the 30 glorious years of post-war expansion, as they're called. And But in a, in a few different countries, from Mexico to France to Japan to uh, the United States, you get these tremendous kind of usually a wave of student protests and a lot of kind of concurrent labor activism and, and political engagement from below that is often met with force, sometimes uh, non-lethal, sometimes lethal by by various governments. And kind of the place where May 68 gets to its furthest point politically is in France, where radical student movements are met with heavy police repression, which is then in turn met by a series of sympathy strikes uh, in the French working class, most of which are, are wildcat, not planned by central trade union authorities. And so something like 11 million workers walk off the job. Students fill the streets and de Gaulle at one point flees to Germany in a kind of good illustration of, of class solidarity. And, and he's so uh, worried about what's go going to happen in France. Uh, eventually this this kind of peters out. There's a an accord reached with labor and a counter, counter protests and then the elections that follow in Early 1969, I want to say, elections described by, you know, the protesters as being a trap for fools or what have you are very successful and they end up kind of giving de Gaulle a bigger majority and everything returns 
the way it was before, kind of startlingly quickly for everybody involved. But since it's not really, it doesn't have any one kind of intellectual lodestar like other past revolutions, like you'll see graffiti in May 68, that would be, you know, Mao, Marx, uh, Marcuse. So it's kind of comes from a place that the old left doesn't really understand and that the ruling class obviously doesn't understand either. And so kind of May 68 uh, gives rise in its wake to a kind of intellectual ferment following the kind of social ferment of the student movements. And it gives rise to kind of a lot of the uh, French kind of structuralist and post-structuralist intellectuals of the kind of latter 20th century that we all know, love, hate, depending on which one, the Derrida's, the Lacan's, the Foucault's, and the Debord's, of course, and another guy named Lefebvre, who's theorizes about the city kind of directly as a, as a site to challenge kind of capitalist hegemony. And he writes a book called The, the Right to the City, La Droit la Ville, which becomes kind of a, a, a guiding text for kind of, yeah, anti-alter-globalization types in years to come. So May 68 kind of is this, this expression of the city, especially of Paris, as being kind of a, a political entity. And then there's lots of, of work after it, after it fails, basically, that continues to analyze what gives rise to things like that and how place is involved, especially. That was a past with Jim Minisode. But yeah, it's something that I find very helpful personally when talking about things that are more theoretical in nature. Like, I think that I'm all right with theoretical concepts, but it definitely gives me a greater understanding and appreciation of them when I can hear about the material circumstances and the historical context out of which they arose. Yeah, I, that obviously helps for me too. I don't really, I can't really do theory on its own at all. <laughs> so uh, this is yeah. my point of entry for most of these things usually. Yeah, returning to this notion of psychogeography, something that also ties into this is the figure of the flaneur, something that the Taleb heads in our audience are probably kind of familiar with. Yeah. He actually had a great tweet yesterday where he posted a screenshot of his daily steps. And he said that everyone should be walking like six to seven miles every single day on hilly terrain, which good luck with that if you live in like Florida. <laughs> but essentially the flaneur is someone who strolls through a city and not to get from point A to point B, but rather to experience their surroundings or to find squidding pasta. I think that the term originated in 1863 with Charles Baudelaire, in his essay, The Painter of Modern Life, Baudelaire describes what he calls the passionate spectator. And of this person, he says that the crowd is his domain. His passion and profession is to become one with the crowd. For the perfect flaneur, it is an immense joy to set up house in the heart of the multitude, amid the ebb and flow of movement, in the midst of the fugitive and the infinite. To be away from home and yet to feel oneself everywhere at home. To see the world, to be at the center of the world, and yet to remain hidden from the world. And I think that's very nicely put, and there's definitely something to be said about the, I guess you could call it the illuminative potential of losing yourself in a crowd or in a city more generally, and the sense of realization that comes with this, of knowing that you're in the midst of and are part of something that's much larger than yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that in my, my, my brief periods as, as a tourist, the way I've, I've most enjoyed myself has been walking aimlessly. There's definitely a part of me which reacts to this like late 19th century notion is, is, is this is this like a a hobby for the leisure class? Is this intended yeah. to be something that that we can all appreciate or is this something so that someone who's otherwise alienated from you know working people can feel feel like they're part of something far bigger? You know. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's uh... And, and all these, like the, the right to the city movement and a lot of these theorists that are kind of challenging these late 19th century notions of the way cities should be kind of in the intellectual abstract and they should have heat and light and air and space and, and those sorts of things. But a lot of these people end up asking, well, for who? Right. And so that's mm. kind of the, 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 the social position of the flaneur, I guess, uh, becomes kind of more important to them than it would have been to... Uh, to the people originally, like Hausman, that we'll talk about in a bit, imagining kind of the pedestrian as a kind of a reified abstract abstract figure. But a couple of things I forgot to say um, there. The uh, probably my favorite bit of French May '68 uh, graffiti. There's a lot of good ones. One of them is "Sous les pavés, la plage," which is the beach is just under the cobblestones. 
which I think is kind of a nice sentiment and speaks to the way that, uh, yeah, kind of the city is imagined as being possibly more than what it looks like, than it, what it looks like immediately than the results of decisions taken by a lot of other people. And you can still see, I also forgot to mention that in the Eastern Bloc too, there's a lot of uh, student protests, strikes, that sort of uh, political agitation. And in 1968, most notably the Prague Spring, and there's kind of a an analogy in how it's generally not resisted with military force, but there's a lot of like passive resistance that takes the form of, you know, painting over a road sign and saying Moscow this way instead. So a, a tank column gets lost in the wrong neighborhood or what have you. And so it kind of there's there's a analogous kind of means of social resistance to the classic uh, Parisian barricade. And that Sous les Pavés line is probably why anybody who's ever been to Paris will notice that it's a revolutionary city because the paving stones are enormous. You need <laughs> so to, you, you, you can't, can't throw them up. Yeah, whereas in, in Prague, they're perfectly baseball-shaped as a much more, I guess, politically restful people. Um, yeah. <laughs> so returning to the Flaner, someone else who took interest in this concept was Walter Benjamin. And his conception of the Flaner was a bit different. He viewed Flannery as a tool in analyzing alienation under capitalism, and the Flaner as an observer of the ails of modernity, I guess you could say. And Walter Benjamin, for any of our listeners who don't know, was a Jewish intellectual, and he was associated with the Frankfurt School, which is a group of thinkers who were working in a sort of Freudian Marxist tradition, I would say, but who were applying these ideas to the critique of culture rather than the economy. Benjamin's magnum opus was the Arcades Project, which he unfortunately never got a chance to finish before his untimely death. Last month was actually the 80th anniversary of his death. So he died in September of 1940 while fleeing Nazi-occupied France. And he crossed the border into Spain, and his plan was to go from Spain to the United States. But obviously, Spain at the time was under the Franco government, who had canceled all the travel visas. So Benjamin, upon his entry, was told that he would be deported back to France. And rather than face repatriation to the Nazis, he opted to take some morphine tablets that he had with him. Awful, a brilliant life needlessly cut short. But returning to what I was saying about the Arcades Project, in it, Benjamin discusses European urban life in general, but more specifically, the Arcades of Paris. And the Arcades were basically these covered areas made of iron and glass, and they were kind of like a precursor to shopping malls. So Benjamin viewed these Arcades as being very emblematic of this new era and capitalism and consumerism. And the way that these arcades came about is actually pretty interesting, too. So they were a part of Haussmann's renovation of Paris. And Haussmann was the person who, under Napoleon III, was tasked with modernizing and revitalizing the city. And this was a massive undertaking. Jim, did you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I got a little kind of essentializing about which people like to rise up and which ones don't. And most of those are, <laughs> are, are not really true. But it is true that uh, people in Paris do be fighting the police all the time, like over multiple modes of production, which I think is pretty impressive. But the classic tactic of the would-be urban rebel is the barricade, where you have enough people in the houses surrounding a street on your team that they start throwing benches and, and tables and chairs and pianos or whatever else out the window to create a massive mound in the middle of the street so that you can hide behind it and deny access to whole areas of the city. You'll notice that Paris today has composed of very wide boulevards. Throwing piano in the middle of the Champs-Élysées obviously isn't going to do you much good because uh, these streets are wide enough that the government can deploy, you know, things like artillery and things like cavalry against its own civilians. And that's, of course, I don't want to make it some people sound like the Haussmann reforms are just like a defense strategy. And I don't want to lean too far into that because it does objectively, I think, look a little bit nicer than it did before he did any of those things. But there's definitely kind of a, a defense element to uh, to that lightning, that opening up and that that airing out. And so if anybody, there are a few photographs that I encourage people to look up of Paris before the Haussmann renovations. And it's it does look like, well, more like we might think of Paris as looking about as kind of these rabbit's warrens of, uh, of old kind of tiled roofs and and narrow, unpaved streets that were so easy to fight in for kind of an inferior enemy. And so Haussmann, as part of this kind of latter 19th century vision of kind of improvement as the, the role of the state and the role of society, as opening these things up, letting air and light flow into the middle of cities, this whole, this whole kind of process is kind of, you can, I feel like I can hear Alan Moore wincing in the background as I describe it, because it seems <laughs> like this kind of making legible of the city and all of its people to uh, authority, standardization, the market, and all of those things are 
are kind of what animates his uh, animates his animus, I suppose. What uh, just what he doesn't want to see in a place like Northampton, and I think his writing this absolute doorstop of a novel about Northampton is probably, I think, emblematic of why Walter Benjamin never properly finished the Arcades project because if it takes that long to write, do justice to Northampton, you know, how long would it take Paris? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sort of a fractal fractal project where you're. Yeah, when you're telling you know, like centuries, centuries of, of intensely detailed and layered history. Right. And I think, you know, like most of our literary forms and a lot of our greatest works of literature are about, <laughs> it's hard to describe English literature without knowing any other kinds, but they are, do tend to be about people in their country houses, right? Where you can have a, a restricted number of characters and have stories that make sense, right? We love to set stories in, on houseboats and on airplanes and in kind of these these places that we are small enough to understand but um yeah. i feel like this, this pure density of the city of, of story kind of in general in the city is such that you can only um you can only attempt to address it in kind of these these huge kind of uh decade spanning works and maybe nobody will ever be able to write about soul or, or lagos this way it remains to be seen i think this is something that joyce did with ulysses too kind of a similar undertaking on moore's part Similar amount of walking so far. <laughs> Very much walking. Yeah. So with all of that being said about France, I think that maybe it's time for us to pass back through the channel into England. And Sam, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit more about more and locality. Yeah, I've, I've definitely, I found myself thinking about this a lot this week. I had a, I had a very strange epiphany, um, which is going to be a little bit of a digression, but I'll take it. So. <laughs> Just this week, I acquired a, let's call it a rescue tarantula. Um, so this is a rather large spider that I am now responsible for the care of. Um, hmm. This is part of, this is a, a sort of an unexpected part of a, a project I've been kind of taking up as part of quarantine recently, which is trying to take care of some simple invertebrates. Sorry, <laughs> I'm sure you have a response to this absurd, absurd way I'm living my life right now. When we get our Patreon set up, one of the tiers is going to be pictures of Sam's bugs. <laughs> pictures of Sam's spider. This is spider. extremely Kafkaesque, Sam. It's, it's yeah, it's really. I, I have a lot of monstrous bugs uh, in my life right now. Um, but it was. I was trying to. I I, I had this very strange this very strange thought about like non-reciprocal relationships and i think for me my initial part of my initial goal in trying to take care of a set of simple arthropods then quite as dramatic as the tarantula initially was to try and and see what it would be like to engage in like a thoughtful mindful relationship that isn't really reciprocal in a classic sense like it would be with a, a pet or a person obviously with 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 people and with pets we can care about them and they cannot care about us but, the, but with mammals and with humans, the capacity for some reciprocation is generally there. With arthropods, there's no you know, misjudgment in me and there's no lack in the creature. It's just never going to really engage with me in any meaningful sense. And yet I'm, I'm still caring for it, which for me is sort of an interesting, I don't know, I think, I think it's, it's part of my thinking on, on environmentalism and trying to think about like what it means to engage in a thoughtful way with things that may not be able to in the way I expect. Sounds like my ex Sorry? I just said sounds like my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't have an ex-wife. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely absolutely the vibe. I was gonna, <laughs> so I was gonna say that the, the thing about a tarantula is, and this, this also applies to the joke, is that they are they are very simple, uh, ancient, stupid creatures. Um, also like my, my ex. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, so tarantulas are, are very old spiders. They're like, you know, you're like 200, 200 million years old or something like that. Oh, okay. Um, so they're, yeah, so some yeah. of the earliest spider fossils are look a lot like tarantulas. And you've got all kinds of spiders that arise over the, you know, in subsequent 200 million years. You have like jumping spiders, which have like object permanence and can, you know, do like really complex spatial analysis. You have, Horrifying. you know or breeding spiders, which can construct extremely, you know, obviously like really, uh, it's instinctual, but very elaborate structures. Uh, tarantulas don't really do that. They're they mostly almost blind. They can barely see shades of, you know, distinguished dark from light. They do pretty much all of their sensing through just vibrations, just their, just their legs. 
They mostly move very slowly and awkwardly. They live quite a long time. They can live anywhere between five and 25 years. Okay. Yeah, no, so the, the oh. males live three to four, three to five years, and the females live anywhere between 20 and 30 years um, mm -hmm. for most species of tarantula. Yeah. Right. So basically the males hit maturity and then they sort of get really randy and start wandering around looking for a lady and then they they mate and then they die. Uh, you sound like my ex-wife. <laughs> I'm now I'm self moratoriuming all of those. You please please continue. Um, but anyway, the, the thing about tarantulas are is they're is they're stupid and they they really don't. I say stupid. I'll, I'll say very simple. They obviously in like the tarantula fandom, there's a lot of a lot of anthropomorphizing. People end up developing really oh, intense relationships with these creatures. Tarantula fandoms. Um, very one sided. <laughs> there's you betcha. There's there's pretty much. Anything you could imagine involving a tarantula is going to be going to be out there. We won't we won't get into all that stuff. Um, well, but I hope our listeners can form kind of parasocial relationships with us the way you're forming it with a huge tarantula. <laughs> exactly. Non relationships with it. <laughs> a strange, a strange creature. <laughs> Let's um, get them on. Let's yeah. Get them on. So I'm gonna this next bit is gonna pull it back to what we were talking about before. But, which is that tarantulas don't really learn. People will, will say that their tarantula is getting to know them, that they're teaching their tarantula how to be handled. It seems like almost anyone who really um, is really scientifically engaging with tarantula behavior will say that's that's not happening. They yeah, are- you wouldn't trust anybody who said that they were training their tarantula and it was actually getting way better with people than it was last week I was at their apartment or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that what, I've, what I'm generally seeing is that people get better with tarantulas. You know? Yeah, I see. Is that people get better at like not agitating the tarantula far more than the tarantulas get better with people. A lot of tarantula owners recommend not handling it because they generally seems to just stress them out. They're not social animals. They don't get anything from it. They're not even that curious. But I was I was struck by this like how increasingly like how tarantula behavior does change over time and how there is a real appearance of quite an intense learning. Well, they were where they will. They will learn the environments of their enclosure. They'll become increasingly comfortable. They'll gain an increased knowledge of their enclosure, apparently. And I think, at least my sort of striking epiphany was that the tarantula is quite clearly remembering, but it's in an external memory. It's it's webbing. The web is a familiar material for it, and it will slow, most species of tarantulas will slowly cover their enclosure in web. Um, it's not a beautiful web. It's just a web that covers every material. Um, it increases their their sensitivity. It means that they can sense things better. But I, I was struck by the image of a creature with very little memory or very little apparent memory externalizing its memory. And I, I, I'm, of course, this this is not an entirely accurate description of a tarantula, but it, I feel like it also holds true for for ants, for for any creature that communicates or inscribes itself in its environment and then reads these inscriptions. And I guess for me, I was I was struck by this, the, the way that we sort of write our memories on our cities and on the environments we live in. I, I was doing some reading about the, the broad notion of which you can sort of very broadly sum up as the set of feelings individual people have towards specific places. Um, this is a, a very broad, broad feel. And I think there's really a lot a lot to get into like, like a, a huge amount to discuss there and i'm sure we will at in future episodes yeah yeah i mean i think that's this is going to be a, a huge part of the topic of the, the of, of what the book is about about place attachment and about relationships with place the, the the idea of a place having a unique identity and character that you can build a relationship with a relationship that can be built perhaps even over generations really seems like just essential to Moore's way of thinking. And, and it's, it's it like really, for me, it's in really striking opposition to the like, what we can sort of broadly categorize as like a neoliberal um, or just like regular modern capital capitalist um, orientation to place in which people are sort of these like fungible objects that can be, you know, moved moved from city to city as the the needs of the the market and, and as the the jobs move too i was i was actually trying to to find a specific um this is like a i think it was like a 70s uh libertarian thinker who was basically proposing you know tent cities as a 
um, as a solution to the economic problems. And I've and just Googling it, I, I came up with this truly horrific um, libertarian, like contemporary libertarian group called Tent City, and it's tentcity.org, I think, is is the website. Don't go there, though. It's just unpleasant. But basically, the... the I'm going to go there. <laughs> I mean, basically, what of it is that it's classic libertarian. We need to, like, deregulate housing so that people... They, they There's a really extraordinary intersection where they say we need to deregulate tiny homes. Wow. So, so you have sort of, like, the combination of the sort of, like, aestheticization of the tiny home as this, like ultimate object like the, the 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 fetish of the house um for the sort of the, the wealthy who can afford to you know pare down and aspire to minimalism or whatever and then there's this libertarian vision of the tiny home which is a tent or a box that you know the the, the workers as they shift from city to city can, can just yeah could could be be totally unattached in and you're um, a guy who just reminded me of he was very libertarian and he lived in a tent in his friend's backyard, not because he couldn't afford rent. He just wanted to live in a tent. <laughs> I think he has an actual house now though. And he's like very Christian now. So that's, that's an some, something. <laughs> it sure is like some yeah, people in life you would just describe as characters. And I think that he is one of those. Definitely. I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who genuinely believe we should live in tents. They're so much better than the people who pretend they don't believe those things and actually yeah. do. I'm thought I'm thinking of like when they they all got booed during their debate for saying that we should keep driver's licenses or whatever. I have way more respect <laughs> for those libertarians than the people who have actually been kind of, you know, deciding how our cities operate uh, for this whole time. And that's yeah. one of the things I wanted to mention. You talked in terms of like fungibility. I guess the modern inherent to the modern vision of a city is that housing is kind of interchangeable and employment is interchangeable and they're two different places and they're discrete and they don't touch one another. And any person from any residence can go to any vocation, I guess you should say, um, and could go to a different one tomorrow, such as the market might require of people. And I think that kind of is central to the, the kind of logic of certain things being built and certain other sorts of things uh, torn down that we're going to, that we're going to see a lot more of, but uh I don't want a libertarian dunk over your 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 spider analogy. I think that's a I think that's a really really good one. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, to I me. enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I, I was I, I was also actually I'm I'm really glad I managed to find the source of the the excerpt I was looking for, um, like literally 20 minutes before we started recording. But I was I was thinking about place and memory, and I was reminded of the I, I don't know if you've heard of this. I, I, Apparently, it's not quite as common as I've as I've been led to believe. But the specific mnemonic device where we, where you walk through your house and you place various points you want to remember at various places in your house. I'm not sure what you mean. So there's so there's like a, a, a an old mnemonic where if you're say trying to remember a speech, or a or a series of information, but I think it was very commonly used by orators, where you would essentially. In your in your mind, you would step into the front door of your house, and in your inside the front door, you would place the first point you wanted to make in your speech. You go into the you you go to the end of your hallway, and there you place the second point. You go to your or your bathroom, and there you place your third point. That's not a good point, um, but so on. And, and and you you link all these points with uh, these geographical locations. And I've I've never I I I only use this like once. I, I never found it particularly effective. But it's a very it's a very ancient technique. And I think it's, it does speak to something about a, a relationship between memory and place. I think um, I do that unintentionally. How... Because... Oh, sorry, I cut you off. No, go ahead. Absolutely. I was just saying that I think I do that unintentionally, because I remember that one time I was talking to someone on the phone while I was crossing at a crosswalk. And they corrected my pronunciation of something. And now whenever I think of that word in any other context, or when it comes up, I think of that specific crosswalk. It's not like intentional on my part at all, but it's just something that just the way it's like made its yeah. way into my mind, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's just a real, real intense link with place and memory. Um, yeah. And um, you guys know the, we make jokes about it, but the, the mind palace, right? <laughs> and that's mm -hmm. like people who do competitive memory and like memorize whole decks of cards and, you know, a, a few seconds do it in terms of like assigning suit values and numbers to objects, which then they remember in a series of rooms and they 
imagine themselves as moving through those rooms. And that's, I think, the only real technique, the only real mainstream technique at the kind of higher levels of kind of performative uh, skill with, with memory. And yeah, like, you know, nobody ever forgets, remembers they forgot their keys because they were thinking about cars or something. It's always a particular spot in your hall where you go, oh, fuck, and you turn around. I feel pretty, yeah, yeah pretty mentally tied. I'm, for instance, that's uh, how, I, how I'm doing this podcast is I, I violated the Federal Quarantine Act so I could leave my house and re-enter it and then read a series of <laughs> sticky notes that I'd been writing all day and let around the house. And now I've been sitting at this desk ready with, with no notes or anything around me because it's all... It's all, all up there, like a, like a steel trap. Saying, like, do not Excuse trust me? their lies. I said, do you have ones with salmon eyes faces on them? Saying, like, do not trust their lies. <laughs> I want to do avatars, and then I have a different part with your faces <laughs> when I want to kind of give a different affect in my tone of voice. Mm -hmm. um, but it's none of your business, you know. <laughs> I was thinking, so, so the other thing that I, I kind of wanted to, that I was reminded of when I was thinking about memory in place, there's... A really extraordinary, and I, I'm really glad that I, I remembered where I'm actually taking this from, but it's it's in Wolf Hall. It's in Hilary Mantle's Wolf Hall, which is itself a quite densely textured work of, of history, although, of course, it's far more in the, the great man great man um, alignment of, of historical fiction. Um, but in Wolf Hall, um, Thomas Cromwell is remembering being, is remembering a thing he was, uh, he, he read by Cicero. This is Cicero is writing about, of course, this great orator is writing about, you know, the first great act of memory. And so speaking of our, you know, memory wizards um, who do the mind palace, I think Simonides, Simonides was the, the one of the first of those, those guys, this, this like Greek guy who is famous for doing that sort of, that sort of thing. And there's this famous anecdote in the sort of history of memory where Simonides is at a, at a, a feast and he is, he's been invited there by the um, by whoever's the, by the guy who's holding the feast and you know some rich asshole who wants him to say this like declaim this long poem um, at the start of the feast and Simonides declaims the long poem and at the end he dedicates it to the rich asshole and then he dedicates it to Castor and Pollux and the rich asshole says um, I'm only going to pay you half uh, you can go ask the ask the twins Castor and Pollux for the other half and halfway, as the feast gets gets late and it gets goes late into the night, the crowding you know crowding intensifies, and a messenger enters the hall and tells Simonides that there are two men waiting for him outside, and he walks out of the hall and sees nobody, and in that moment the hall collapses behind him, on top of the partiers, and there's there's this this is the this is the excerpt from Mantle's Wolf Hall, where she says. The bodies were so broken and disfigured that the relatives of the dead could not identify them. But Simonides was a remarkable man. Whatever he saw was imprinted on his mind. He led each of the relatives through the ruins and pointing to the crushed remains, he said, there is your man. In linking the dead to their names, he worked from the seating plan in his head. It is Cicero who tells us this story. He tells us how on that day, Simonides invented the art of memory. He remembered the names, the faces, some sour and bloated, some blithe, some bored. He remembered exactly where everyone was sitting at the moment the roof fell in. Hello. Hmm. I was quite struck by that passage when I, when I hit it for the first time. So it obviously, it obviously stuck with me in the, the years since I've, I've read that book. Um, yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. No problem. It's interesting because in my reading on place attachment, it's primarily a positive affect. Um, this is obviously a, this story is about a more complicated uh, relationship. Although possibly Simonides was quite happy to see all of these assholes crushed. But I, but yeah, I, I think the relationship between memory and place is intensely fascinating to me. Yeah. Would you guys say that you have a strong attachment to where you're from? Jim, you want to go first? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I definitely do. I have kind yeah, of a series of. Excuse me. I said you're a Vancouver boy. That's right. Yeah, I'm kind of a the BC stuff by now is a bit, but I have kind of a I think a strong sense of home and a since there's not hmm, the kind of West Coast is a strange contrast in that it's like some of the world's most dislocated people living uh, on and above and around much longer memories from that are local and indigenous that we don't have much of a relationship with. But since everybody else has 
not only come from somewhere else, but come from somewhere else very far away and usually pretty recently. I think that certain aspects of of place and of, of community and of location can kind of maybe uh, maybe that's what we've kind of uh, you know latched onto out here in in lieu of more established traditions of of memory and such. But uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely have a I think a strong relationship with my my wandering areas and the area I grew up in in the city and as well as some some areas further north where I am now. Although those are uh, kind of less important to me personally, but yeah, I'd say I have a pretty a pretty strong connection in that sense with the places that have made me who I am, so to speak. Do you go back to the place where you places where you grew up much? Yeah, I uh, I lived in the same house for most of my life, almost all my life. So uh, pretty lucky to have a pretty strong connection with a place that I that I can easily be at, I guess. I think yeah. that I have that less because I grew up in the suburbs. And as everyone I'm sure is aware, the suburbs are very atomized, not really a place that really has an identity in the sense that cities do. And there's not really the sense of community that, that you get from rural areas either. They're just kind of like a strange in-between yeah, kind of just antithetical to human life in general. Yeah, pretty much. I definitely, I I was born in the U.S., but we moved to Ireland when I was just a you know, just a baby, and I always felt a little bit. I, I I definitely always always felt a little bit foreign in a strange way. Then, of course, the absurdity of moving back to the U.S. and realizing that I was foreign here too. But I, I do have an intense relationship. I think with a lot of locations where I grew up. I grew up really close to the the ocean. As a result, I think I've never really like fully felt at home when there's somewhere I can't see water. I can't see I can't see the sea. Uh, a river will do in a pinch. Um, Great Lakes are Great Lakes are you know just just about acceptable, but but for me, it's got to be something that you can't see. You can't see something on the other side of. It, it yeah. just it, it's I, I have a very it was a place that I would go to. Uh, I'd, I'd go down to the beach when I was, you know, stressed out or I was struggling, and just sit there. I have a lot of a lot of feelings related to to the ocean and, and to living by the ocean. I think. Yeah, I definitely now that now that you mention it, I, I think I I miss the ocean a little, because I, 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 I the place I grew up was pretty 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 interesting to look at. It was next to a harbor, but also surrounded by surrounded by pretty substantial mountains. And I find when I leave those in any direction, once I get either over the continental divide or elsewhere in the world, I can get pretty kind of like if I yeah. fell off, there'd be nothing to grab onto. It's a funny, it's a funny kind of sensation. It doesn't make a lot of sense. The, I'm sure the, the the mountains where I grew up in Ireland are not a, not a pinch on the Canadian mountains. Ireland's a little more, a little more muted. But for me, I found that the mountains, I, I, I noticed this when I was, when I was visiting I think, Virginia for the first time where I have, we have some family and I, it felt, it felt like the sky was lower. Because there weren't there weren't mountains, um, sort of pushing it up. It was it was like the the vertical scale of the world was was compressed. That's just uh, it. It's like yeah. yeah. I did a cross country road trip of Canada last summer, and Jim, what you were saying that's something that I definitely noticed while driving across the prairie provinces, just the amount of sky and I guess the expanse of it. Like it just makes you feel very vulnerable in a sense. I feel like I fly on a beach ball in the prairies. I get. I get nervous. Yeah, I don't like it. I like being in the mountains. Yeah. Like you mentioned suburbs, but it's interesting how most of these, even places that we talk about as neighborhoods of really big cities, are uh, former suburbs usually that now are not seen as such because everything about them has changed. But that's, I think, one is kind of interesting contrast between what suburbs mean in North America as kind of a, a bedroom community uh, put outside the city and joined by the automobile versus the, the European suburb of kind of the the, the council flat or, you know, the housing block or the Khrushchevsky or whatever, Khrushchevskaya, I should say, uh, that kind of pop up all over all over Europe and elsewhere and elsewhere in the world and Latin America and that kind of that's kind of uh, 30 glorious years after after the war and kind of how those are, even though they're still they're not the same, right? There's no they're not so much centered around the automobile, but they're still seen as kind of soulless and still yeah. seen as not a particularly desirable place to live. Uh, for kind of these historical reasons that are difficult to describe in like a real estate listing, but I think are very real and kind of make sense to people on a, on a deeper level. Where, where I grew up, it was like the house that I grew up in would have probably been 70, 80 years old. I, Ireland's sort of a weird one in, in its, its waves of development. Um, so it's sort of, it's, it's a, whole other, a whole other story. But in the Celtic Tiger, 
which was the Irish financial bubble, which is what we, we, we call it in retrospect, um, <laughs> which was a really extraordinary time where they were, uh, it's really, you could talk about this for, for hours, but they, this, the, the government provided these in, intense incentives to not only get, you know, houses far behind your means, but to buy multiple houses. They were encouraging people to take out loans to, to buy investment homes. And you had a huge, a significant proportion of the population buying investment homes, which really doesn't make sense. You, you can't, you, you can't have, you know, a bunch of extra investment homes. It's not, a, it's not a, a stock that, that is, that is, is valuable outside of its use as a house. This um, is uh, ringing some bells here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it collapsed, but I, I remember, God, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Ireland was, was actually one of the, the bursting points of the global bubble. It was, it was so bad here. There was so, the corruption was so deep in, in the government uh, with, with the, the, the ruling, with the party at the time, uh, Fianna Fáil, the, the, our, our Taoiseach, who was previously Minister for Finance, claimed that he did not have a bank account when he was Minister for Finance. Um, <laughs> cool. Because he was cool. seeking so many bribes in cash. Nice. Yeah, I, I mean, but the result was the construction of these huge estates and there's a bunch of huge estates in this town where i live which before this was mostly um mostly small mostly small houses that were could have been there for sort of anywhere between 40 and 100 years and we should they, also probably uh have an intervention for our north american listeners as to uh what we mean by estates because that is yes. a very different uh yeah yes i guess at a state is a kind of like a, a a part of a suburb a set of a set of housing um a set of streets with, with 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 housing on them. That's what I'd consider an estate. So we might say subdivision. Yes. Uh, we might say project, depending on like other things. Community? Yeah, sort of like a planned community. But yeah, I mean, there's these there's these vast estates in the town that I grew up in, and we we we, we had a beautiful harbor that was kind of falling apart, and they did the thing, which I think is described in in that first chapter of of Jerusalem, where. They sell the the land to a developer for you know a few pennies, and the developer builds, redevelops the harbor, but then builds some you know huge apartments right on the the new the new beachfront. Um, so I I have a <laughs> a personal definitely a personal connection with that sort of that sort of soulless soulless destruction. Right. I was going through. I did a little kind of tried to follow some of the characters' roots on on Street View, which is mm. pro- probably not how you're kind of supposed to read a book i don't imagine but i felt in this case it was kind of justified and yeah kind of getting a sense of place um and it was it was really interesting just how like externally completely unremarkable the areas that he's describing are and yet because of their history they are but yeah can't tell for looking and that's i think something that you get a sense of in a city that you that you don't so much in a suburb also the, the biggest i'm not, not sure if they were there when you started writing but the biggest uh are you there, Jim? Jim? We lost Jim. Oh, no. <laughs> He's walking around his house right now to try to remember what he was about to say. <laughs> He's running back to his door. <laughs> reading <laughs> his steps. <laughs> I think that Jim is back. That Jim? Indeed I am, yeah. Awesome. Welcome back. Thank do you. you. Do, you, do you have a thought? that you wanted to finish or is that, is that sort of lost somewhere between your front hall and your, uh, yeah. Uh, um, no, I just wanted to also mention that MK Dons is also has like a, is hated, I believe widely among English football fans for having sort of a, an imported team that they, uh, sort of poached from somewhere that it did have incredibly like deep community roots and then decided it was going to be MK Dons. And so Alan Moore's kind of, uh, I guess civic distaste for everything it represents is mirrored by probably a lot of people who wouldn't get along with Alan Moore. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Also returning to the book specifically, as Sam mentioned, a good portion of the prologue is told from the point of view of a child. And Jim, I know that you wanted to talk about the point of view of the child in British literature in general. Yeah, it just kind of really, um, Moore doesn't, of course, get to do a lot of this because he's uh, usually gets to show the viewer the scene. But I find that kind of that, like the aspect of childhood is often 
a way of beginning or especially a way of uh, painting a seam in uh, painting a seam a scene in a way that lets it kind of be a little more legible in terms of description to a viewer and i just like not being an especially well-read person the opening scene of kind of a thing being seen as a child and thus described in ways that we wouldn't think of describing a place that we just been but would like to but need to, to in order to be able to relate to it in a novel and i thought of the kind of device of having it seen through a, a child's eyes and not completely honestly right the child's of course yeah. uh has more of the audience in her than than would be plausible but it just felt very that. much like a yeah. yeah. Well, and I get maybe it was also because of the the kind of parallel between the you mentioned Sam Aslan and the the carpenter. Yeah. But you know the other the the other uh, you know Narnia analogy is the one light in the sea of darkness that seems incongruous and that doesn't make a lot of sense to the child yeah. that arrived there, but makes them feel comforted and stuff, right? Absolutely. And so uh, that gave me a a very kind of similar feel, or you know everything from Narnia to the Secret Garden to a million other. Yeah. Yeah. especially kind of Victorian works that tend to start with what a child sees and, and what a child understands. And so I thought that kind of put him in, put him a on a irony. kind of broad array of, yeah. A little irony too, though, in that in terms of working in that tradition, my ex experience of the Victorian child narratives is there's a, a, a pretty strong emphasis on the naivety and innocence of the child, whereas Moore is... has, has her, her, has his five-year-old judging the two-year-old for being, you know, insufficiently serious, and and is and this right. yeah. child is able to identify, you know, is, is like isn't able to sort of specifically identify like poetic references, but it's like this is something that's familiar to me. This this is a smart adult's understanding of a smart child, which I, is very yeah. endearing to me. Yeah. Instead of right, 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 what you know, right. Yeah. I also think that it's interesting to see kind of the development of attitudes towards children throughout the history of literature that's being written for them. Like now there's obviously this association of childhood and this notion of innocence that seems inextricable to us, but this wasn't always the case. Like in the Middle Ages, children were seen as being born evil in a sense due to the notion of original sin. And it was kind of thought that it was through instruction and education that these fallen creatures could be redeemed, so to speak. Correctly so. <laughs> and I guess like kind of the first major pushback against that was with John Locke and like the tabula rasa. So like being children's minds is a blank slate. And then Jean-Jacques Rousseau, like not too long after that, he also rejected this notion of original sin. And he even went as, he even went so far as to propose that children are born innocent and that it's the world that corrupts them. And I think that this view of childhood as being a time of innocence is something that you can see in the work of a lot of romantic poets as well, maybe most notably in William Blake's work. And I guess like all roads kind of lead back to Blake on the show because of his influence in Jerusalem. But yeah, so like Blake's most popular collection of poems is called Songs of Innocence and Experience. And it's comprised of two parts. So with the Songs of Innocence, it's kind of these idyllic pastoral scenes of childhood Whereas Songs of Experience offers, I guess you would say, an analogous look into what Blake would call their contraries. So the supposing state of adulthood disillusionment. And although there was like definitely more sympathy towards children on the part of the romantics, I wouldn't say that this was the prevalent the prevalent attitude in any sense. Because like if you look at Victorian era children's literature, it's all very much didactic and moralizing. Like, books will be written for small children in Victorian times with titles that are like The Southamptonshire Adventures of Sam and Jim, wherein is shown the superiority of moral virtue over vice. Like, it's very much like stuff like that, which isn't very fun. Yeah, I, I mean, so I have a, a, a question. I think this is, for me, is always very interesting in the relationship with sort of innocence and, and the child. Is Do you think, like, Blake and the Romantics see this sort of becoming an an adult as a sort of fall as like a fall from grace as a fall from the grace of the the child because you, you use the word disillusioned is, is is it is the childish innocent like an illusion or is it like uh, an ideal that we should try and return to or somewhere between the two well i'm not smart enough to give a conclusive answer on that in any regard but i think my personal opinion would be that i think they view 
the childlike sense of wonder about the world is something that we should strive to return to. Because, like for Blake, like seeing the world in a grain of sand, like that's very much something that ad- mm-hmm. that adults don't really do. But with children, if you give them a leaf, they can figure out like worlds within that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think like the the idea of because we also see the child in terms of this not just being curious and seeing, taking things as they come and having that sense of wonder about the world, but she's, they're receiving visions, right? Kind of as, mm. as children yeah. in both these senses. And I think since that's inextricably tied in, in Moore's work, but also kind of in, I think, most cultures until very recently, is that uh, madness too is seen as a kind of liminal space uh, between the everyday and the and the supernatural. And so I think we'll probably be seeing a lot more uh, both kind of children and people at the fringes, the kind of madman in the in the prophetic sense is kind of more as messengers is in this work because he does seem so attached to that kind of semi mythological taste for the the liminal space for the in between right for those uh, gutters corners walls and edges yeah exactly about. so I think childhood will also be I think in Moore's work might be a bit of that uh, kind of a closer connection to to things unseen that he'll uh, that he doesn't necessarily see adults as maybe not as as unable to see, but as having to to put in way more effort than the yeah. the child who doesn't know what can't be or whatever. Or if it's just as an adult, a far more unpleasant experience, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what you were saying about visions with childhood specifically—that's also something that Blake experienced. Like I think he said that when he was nine years old, he saw angels in a tree, and that was kind of a big moment in his life for him. Yeah, I mean that, that makes that makes sense to me. There's this there's this sort of grand Christian tradition of miracles and sort of extraordinary things being witnessed by children, and these being the, the sort of initial points of sacred sites and, and, and sanctification and yeah. beatification. Right. Only good British children, though, not uh, not Joan of Arc <laughs> or anything like that. Um, I guess yeah. William Blake's kind of and William Blake is I don't want to say I guess he's. The other, yeah, well, because I mean, the other part of all these uh, all these stories is that when you know when when the grownups go to look at the wardrobe, it's just a wardrobe, mm-hmm. right? And these yeah. this kind of sense of childlike wonder is usually kind of paired either at the end of the story or, or somewhere along the way that this is kind of an, an experience that's special to them, and that uh, obviously not not the case in in Jerusalem thus far, but I think uh, yeah. is a part of that tradition to some extent. Well, it requires the it requires the um, the 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 liminally inclined adult to recognize it for what it is. And, and right. I think we've got a really interesting, an interesting contrast here where we have, of course, Mick, who's the regular guy, you're just your, your average Joe, who's experienced this intensely important vision and is convinced, you know, he's having a breakdown. Um, and for more, it's like, this is the sort of thing that requires interpretation by your, by your priest, which I think that's is, right. Is yeah. And I, I love that line he has. What's uh, you know the problem with you, Mick, is that you have an idea and you think you're having an aneurysm. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is all like, I think Mick is like, what I I don't know yet. It's so early in the story, but I I, I see if Alma being kind of the stand-in for more than maybe Mick is the stand-in for people that aren't like more. Yeah, I I, I enjoyed that kind of bit of uh, that bit of banter. Um, even if it was him writing himself, I still enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, one thing I really enjoyed, I really liked the, the description of just that little sort of linguistic investigation of going around the bend um, yeah. as, a, as a turn of phrase, um, particularly in conjunction with the, right. the angels and angles, which is, which are themselves described as sort of a, 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 uh, it's, a it's a bend, it's a bent. He's, uh, it's, okay. it's, this is like moving outside of regular space. Um, uh, and if we think about, which we're going to get into more detail on the sort of eternalist perspective, which to really briefly say is like that all, all time we live in this one massive moment that all time exists simultaneously. This, this bend could in a sense be a movement um, sort of perpendicularly to this so that more can, um, can chop and change that, that the, the, the priest can, can, can move around in this, this, this moment, so to speak. But that's that's just me spitballing. That's just what? That's just me spitballing. <laughs> well, I think that that's as good a place to leave it off as any. 
Do you guys have anything else that you wanted to? <laughs> Do you guys have anything else that you wanted to say before we end things? Uh, no. I think I, I think I got it all in there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and before we go, if you enjoyed listening to Jim telling you about the past, you should check out his podcast, The Past with Jim. Yeah, it's on on Twitter at uh, at Jim Past Jim Past Cast, but uh, I'm sure people people will be seeing my account uh, from this episode being posted, and you can you can find it through there in my my bio. Anyway, thank you for the plug. I appreciate that. Third episode's mm-hmm. coming any any day now. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about any day. Probably next couple <laughs> weeks. Hopefully. Awesome. Next episode's yeah. going to be in 2021. It depends how long how if I. Once I'm at home, I'll be in a bigger house and I can have more post-its and I'll be able to do the podcast <laughs> properly. So, yeah. It's so hard in this apartment. I have to go in circles. It's a pain. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, am I, am I on the third rotation or the fourth rotation? My roommates are so confused. And I think they think I'm losing. Anyway. Well, thank you for anyone who made it this far and we hope you enjoyed listening to us ramble. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for listening. That was uh that was fun. <laughs>